Hello, kindred spirits, and welcome to Modcast, the podcast of the Ella Montgomery Institute, broadcasting from the beautiful campus of the University of Prince Edward Island. We're so glad that you've tuned in. This is Modcast Season 1, Episode 2, and I'm your host, Dr. Brenton Dickerson. In our quest to discover cutting-edge scholarship about the life and works of Lucy Maud Montgomery and join imaginative readers throughout the world, we welcome to the microphone our special guest, Laura Layden. Laura Layden is a PhD candidate in translation studies at the University of Helsinki, working on the final stages of her thesis on adaptation and translations of girls' fiction from English into Swedish and Finnish, including translations of Montgomery's Emily trilogy. Alongside her PhD project, she has written several journal articles and book chapters on the translations of Montgomery's books and has been a regular speaker at the Ella Montgomery conferences for the last 10 years. Laura, welcome to the Modcast. Thank you. Good. Now, as Modcast listeners are avid readers, we like to talk about the books that are on our bedside tables. And I'm going to mention a Montgomery one right now. I'm, I'm reading a collection of her orphan stories called Akin to Anne, collected by Rhea Wilmhurst. It's, it's an interesting volume. It really highlights the importance of orphans that are both lost and found in Montgomery's works. Laura, what, do you, what are you reading these days? Recently, I've been listening to a newly published audiobook version of the Finnish translation of Montgomery's Emily of New Moon. This is actually the originally published translation. So it's very, it's very interesting to me because it's different from the slightly adapted version of the translation, which is the one I've been reading in my childhood and which is the one I'm researching. And the recording is actually also very old. I think it's from, from the 50s, from the time before before the, the adapted translation was published. So it's very different from modern Finnish audiobooks. So the reading is very expressive. And, and that means that I can really hear the voice of young Emily in this reading. Wow. Yeah, I love when audiobooks come alive like that for me, when the characters jump out. I'm wondering, thinking about the old language, Laura, is it, does it have kind of that, like a broadcaster or is it like a storyteller voice? What's the voice like? Well, the language is kind of old-fashioned, and the broadcast caster, well, she's speaking in 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 a bit of a, a dialect that's different from my own, and and yeah, the tone is kind of kind of different, kind of what 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 would have used would have been used then. So mm. it's it's very interesting, and she reads in a very funny way. So I just laugh at the, some, <laughs> the things that Emily does because Emily just seems so so kind of smart <laughs> in her reading. Oh yeah well she like Emily's both a scamp uh, kind of a fun character who is doing things differently but very intelligent and sensitive too um, yeah. and yeah yeah so I'm glad that that comes out. I know you are you're an expert in children's literature, you're an expert in translation, and you bring those together. I remember reading in Montgomery's diaries how she enjoyed seeing translations from around the world can Can you tell me how you first encountered Montgomery stories? Well, obviously, I encountered them in Finnish translation and Quite randomly, it was an audiobook of Jane of Lantern Hill that my mom had just picked up at the library. 
And I still remember that reading or actually listening ex experience very, very vividly because of how beautifully Montgomery described PEI as, as Jane's paradise in contrast to her earlier life in Toronto. And of course, at that time, I know, knew nothing about that one day PI would be my own vacation paradise. <laughs> so, yeah, and later, I didn't, I didn't encounter the Anne books until as, when I was a teenager, because this audiobook thing was when I was about 10. But when I was a teenager, my, my friend introduced me to the Anne books, which she had inherited from her mom. And that's kind of how my Montgomery journey really started. And mm. my interest has just escalated from then. Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. And you've, you've been online, you've been uh, in person uh, at a number of these Montgomery conferences as part of that love, right? Yeah, yeah, that's that's why it's not just the wonderful texts, but all the kindred spirits that I met both online and at the conferences. Yeah, so that it, really inspires me. Well, and that's brilliant. And, and I think it's actually perfect that you're one of the features of the Montgomery Conference, this digital online uh, virtual space that's happening this weekend. Uh, it's something unusual, something we didn't plan, of course, because of, of the events of early 2020 when we're recording this. So let's dig into the project that you have for this weekend. Tell us about this intriguing translation study that you're working on right now. At the conference, I was supposed to be speaking about the covers and other paratexts of the Nordic Emily translations. In those, we can see that they showcase domestic elements rather than Emily's creativity, especially, especially in the later books, though Emily's creativity actually increases by the end of the series. Yeah, and I, I actually am looking at the at your Instagram site that I have right in front of me, and you're right, you know, she's there's houses and doors and bedrooms and she's holding cats or driving in, in carriages or standing in front of a garden. Those are the kinds of images that you mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, doesn't, it doesn't always represent my own vision of Mon Montgomery because I maybe think more about the creativity and the nature. Mm. But, but most of the covers are still very, very beautiful. And they tell a lot about, about the time when they were published and and about the publisher's vision of Montgomery's texts. Mm. Yeah, they are gorgeous, aren't they? Yeah. So, so I'm curious, and maybe I've, I've almost answered my own question. You have this scholarship. You're very writerly. You're a good writer. Um, and you work on translation. Why then go to Instagram, which is something we don't always connect with scholarship? Well, because the conference did unfortunately not happen this year, or it's happening online, I wanted to create something more interactive, something where I could engage with readers all over the world and maybe have an approach that combines both the academic and the personal. So I chose Instagram because, well, I've been using it myself for for a long time and I, I really love it and I feel feel it's currently the best platform for visual match material and being interactive around that. It's been so great and I and since I've started the account I've actually discovered 
another Montgomery community, the Instagram Montgomery community, which is also very wonderful with readers from so many different countries. Yeah, and I'm sure they love what you're doing there there on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, people do often comment that they love a particular cover or that they didn't know this or that detail about the translation or Mm. just that it's interesting to learn about the translations from other countries, in this case, the Nordic countries. Mm. Now, I know you're from inland, so you have this intimate Nordic connection. What's special about approaching... Uh, your work, Montgomery's uh, writings, with that region in mind? Well, for me, the whole, the whole Nordic region is very special, and I feel, feel at home in the whole Nordic region because of my own cultural heritage and because the whole region shares a cultural heritage. So, so the Nordic countries are actually Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland, and as you said, I'm from Finland, but I'm actually bilingual in Finnish and Swedish. So that means that I can pretty much understand all of the languages spoken in the Nordic region. And that's very useful when you want to study the translations. Yeah. And then and then you also speak English. So you're able to take, like there are very few people who work yeah, in the Montgomery Yeah, that's scholarship. essential too. Yeah. That, <laughs> to cover an entire region, then translate that for the rest of the world is quite a is quite a skill, uh, Laura. Yeah, and the reason why I can understand also the other languages is that the four Scandinavian languages, which are Swedish, Norwegian, Danish, and also Icelandic, are very closely related. So you can pretty much understand them based on one of them, except for Icelandic, which is a bit closer to the old Scandinavian language. So so I, I only understand like maybe what the context of a text is and uh, words words I I can pretty much translate the titles of the Icelandic books using using a dictionary for some words that are very different <laughs> but but actually reading a text in Icelandic is a challenge for me. Yes, and then yeah. yeah and then there's Finnish which is a very different language from the Scandinavian languages because it's completely unrelated. Mm. But yeah. but Finland still shares the cultural heritage of the Nordic, other Nordic countries because Finland used to be a part of Sweden historically and, and therefore Sweden is, Swedish is still the second official language in Finland. Yes, yeah. And, and I, I love fantasy literature, high fantasy. So these Nordic countries are sort of the, the atmosphere of much of that material. And, you know, so people like me would, would study old Icelandic or, or something like that just for fun, right? Just to, to get a sense of the language. And so we know the, the cultural importance of the Scandinavian region you know, for kind of the stories we tell. But still, I would have expected in the early 1900s for uh, early translations would be Spanish or German or French of Montgomery. So when did Montgomery get first translated into some of these Nordic languages? Well, Swedish was actually the first language in the world to have a translation of Anne of Green Gables. And that was already in 1909, which was only a year after the publication of Montgomery's original. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other Nordic languages soon followed. 
because Norway and Denmark both had translations in 1918 and Finland had one in 1920. And then the Icelandic translation was published in 1933. So that's, that's all, all early translations. Yeah. And, and, and I think you said the translation title is a little bit different for Green Gables. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And there's many similarities between the, these Nordic translations, because, for example, Green Gables translates into something that's roughly Green Hill in all of these Nordic translations. And that points to some kind of collaboration, because Montgomery actually never mentions anything about Green Gables being situated on a hill. No, no. But I think sometimes you have to make those adjustments. I remember being in Japan and seeing Anne of Green Gables in Japanese. It was a Kage no An, which is red-haired Anne, because they don't have gables, right? They didn't know what a gable was. The houses aren't like that. In this case, you actually see the links between these different translations in the Nordic region. Yeah, these adaptations and abridgments that you can see in translations are, are a really really good way to discover connections and links between between the translations and well i've mainly been studying the finnish and swedish translations and having having done that i found a lot of proof that the finnish translations of both the Anne and emily books were actually based on the swedish translation right yeah so there's actually like a like a cue there's a there's a particular um, idea or way of approach behind and then the others flow out of that one is that right yeah yeah and i think when it comes to finnish one of the reasons behind why they based based it on the swedish was that there wasn't so many english speakers in finland in the 1920s so it was whereas swedish was even more widely spoken then than it's now so it was very easy for them to find a translation translator yeah. who spoke Swedish and, and, well, they had probably seen the success of the Swedish translation. It gives a chance to play off of that success. Yeah. One of the things that I don't always love is abridgments. Uh, you know, and you've mentioned that word a couple of times. Are, are abridgments part of the early features of translation in Scandinavia? Yeah, they definitely are, and they are the quality, the the main shared quality between the Nordic translations. And of course, it's not only Montgomery translations that were subject to abridgment at this time. It it happened especially in children's literature, but also in some like adult classics. Right. Yeah. No, that can. I think that can happen. But I'm also surprised just because they're fair, they're fairly short books, right? The, the the books are kind of short. So, what's the logic of abridgment? Uh, do you think that was going on there uh, from 1909 through the next few decades? Well, the main reason for the abridgment is that the translations were strictly placed in the domain of children's literature in the Nordic countries, even though. Montgomery's originals are actually what we today call crossover texts for readers of all ages. So the abridgments were basically made because the translations targeted a younger audience and the publishers thought that Montgomery's books were too long for what they considered normal growth book length. 
Right. Yeah. And that's kind of funny because uh, I have to say, like when I watch uh, girls and, and boys who love books at age 9, 10, 11, they, I can't keep up with them reading. I mean, they just devour books when they really love a book. And I think Montgomery has been read that way a lot. But abridgments, even if kids want more, they do tell us about kind of translators' goals or publishers' goals goals or culture. So what kind of things did they take out in those abridgments? Well, I've been writing especially about the Swedish translations of the Emily trilogy for, for from many different aspects. Right now, I'm working on an article for the Journal of Montgomery Studies on the abridgment of intertextuality and, and Emily's reading. And this was obviously inspired by the conference topic of two years ago, which was Ellen Montgomery and reading. Many of the intertextual references in the Emily trilogy have, have been omitted. The ones that Montgomery uses, for example, to empower, empower Emily and to showcase her creativity or sometimes to provide sub- subversive commentary on the constraints that wow. Emily encounters as a young, young girl. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, uh, another type of abridgment is that Montgomery's beautiful nature descriptions are cut. Oh, well, that that actually really surprises me. I mean, when you think of Nordic mythology and the gorgeous lands, I mean, you say Prince Edward Island's your dream vacation. You know, I, I, I want to go to different parts of Scandinavia. So I would have thought that nature and that, um, you know, the mountain imagery of the Alpine path, I would have thought that those would connect with readers. Yeah. Yeah, I think the publishers didn't didn't think that far. They just thought that young readers they are not interested in descriptions. They just want plot-centered books. But actually as as we all know, many readers around the world, maybe in Scandinavia and the Nordic countries especially actually love Montgomery's nature descriptions. Yeah. Readers of all ages love them, so it might not have have been the best best choice actually, but it was something that was done. And a third type of abridgment that I have found is abridgment related to the female female gender role and 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 the constraints. Yeah, and that would no. be that would be a cultural that would be a cultural thing. Is that right? That the the norm breaking or female gender role elements that would be uh, sensitive to the Swedish culture of the time. Is that right? I think this aspect too is, is more related to that. They targeted uh, young readers and they, they wanted, wanted to present a, di- uh, a particular image of a girl. This, this despite that Swedish, um, Sweden, at this time was very well well at least they were not not behind on these kind of questions because there there was like Astrid Lindgren's Pippi Longstocking who was <laughs> a very liberated young girl but yeah. but translations often often are well they don't change as quickly as original so in translations the publishers still had a more conservative approach and they wanted to present a certain kind of girl that didn't have as much of the alternative spirituality montgomery has and and all the defying of the adult authority like there's 
a lot of when adults don't uh, don't behave very well or if maybe <laughs> Montgomery's narrator questions what the adults do the translations like to cut that oh wow because, yeah. yeah but that seems to me so central to particularly both the Emily and Anne character it's not that they're bad kids it's that their um their sense of goodness transcends just normal rules sometimes right so they have a greater good that they're connecting with in their sort of mischievousness or the mistakes they make right yeah and montgomery's narrator always always supports that and supports <laughs> their rule breaking at yeah. it and it's it's a good thing and it's more a criticism of the rules like the rules are a bit too strict and yeah yeah, no, that's right. The, you're right. You're right. Montgomery's narrators, particularly in those two series, are definitely on the side of the children. Uh, they're definitely on the side of um, imaginative breaking of the rules. Although there's still propriety, it, it is. It does break those bounds a bit, right? So this is a audio moment. You and I are speaking to one another, but this is part of a, a larger, uh, you're pointing to a larger conference space. So it can tell us where people, if they want to go and read about these things you're talking about or, or see them, uh, can you give us, a, give us some pointer towards that direction? I'm actually currently writing a blog post for the LMMI blog, which is going to be published around the same time as this podcast. And and there I'll be writing about my Instagram project and the Nordic translations of Montgomery's books. And I'll be adding some references and links to all the research that has been published on the Nordic translations. So you can check that out if you want to know more about what has been abridged. Yeah, that I think that's really brilliant. And and folks, you'll be able to find in the show notes uh, links to the Instagram account, LM Montgomery Nordic, uh, as well as the blog when it as it's published. Um, so I, I love that we can point people in that direction. You can always find out more. Now, Laura, uh, ch changing a bit from kind of your scholarship to more speaking as a reader and scholar, what would you say to emerging scholars who have the ability to read different translations? Like, what should they be looking for as they sit down to read? Well, first and foremost, it's important to study translations at all, because translations can expose constraints that books are are subject to. Like when we look at an original, we can rarely know what kind of changes might have been made during the editing process. But what when it comes to translations, we can look at the original and the translation next to each other and then see what changes were made during the translation process. Yeah, brilliant. It really is a that comparative view. And of course, having three languages really helps in your case, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I get to see many different visions of these books. Right, vision's a great word because seeing a translation is sort of like seeing through somebody else's eyes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that's true. Translation is like, it's it's like our our chance to look 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 at other cultures mm -hmm. 
brilliant. I'm brilliant. Quite practically, you know, as there's so much great writing that's coming throughout the world, including some Scandinavian books that have made their way into English and French translations and gone through the world. So what would your advice to parents and teachers, what's your advice in, in choosing great translations? Well, the most important thing is to remember that translations are an option alongside all the great writing published in your own language. And it's also important to be aware of what kind of different translations are available because, well, there's average translations, there's faithful translations, and both, both can be equally good when you're choosing what translation you want to read if you're so lucky that there's several options for the same book, you should just think what what you want, what's best, what's best for you, what works for your children, your students. It could depend on their age or their interests. And another good idea is to talk about that you're reading a translation and what what that means. That it means that you're reading a book that was written in other in another language and a book that comes from another culture. Awesome. That, those are actually great tips. And I love that you can speak as an expert on this, but also speak into this kind of Montgomery world that we share. So, so Laura, thanks so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you. All right. So just so listeners know, as I've said, we've got links in the show notes to Laura Layden's work, if you would like to check it out. As always, you can uh, check out the work of the Ellen Montgomery Institute at lmmontgomery.ca, including interactive features, guest posts, news about conferences and calls for papers, the newest releases of the Journal of Ellen Montgomery Studies, and links to digital resources like the beautiful online repository, Kindred Spaces. And of course, this week, there is the June 2020 Vision Virtual Conference Space launch, a forum that's online that will work throughout the next few months, sharing different kinds of scholarship and creative projects that are about Montgomery's life and works. Now, if you enjoyed the Modcast and you would like others to enjoy it as well, please share this on social media and give us a rating. It really helps to spread the news about the Modcast and the Institute's work and helps get the word out about cutting-edge research like this and new initiatives. I'm your host, Brenton Dickinson. I'm here with Technical Director Christy McKinney. Until next time, remember that Anne once said that kindred spirits are not so scarce as I used to think. Farewell. Farewell.